Greetings, grandstanders. This is part two of the Spectating Spectrum series, The Atheist, a conversation with an often forgotten member of the grandstand. Because, as any grandstander knows, proper grandstanding requires that you lose your faith in your fandom sometimes in order to be able to truly appreciate it. And The Sports Atheist provides that uh, much-needed perspective. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to another episode of Grandstand Podcast. Today we have a we have a special guest with us. Uh, his name is uh, Nathan Eisenberg. He wrote a piece in the New Inquiry called "Ultra Violence." It's about uh, fascism in sports, particularly soccer. We're gonna be kind of getting into that. And of course, with us is uh, Manny checking in from New York City. Manny, how how you doing out there? I'm good. Good. It's getting a little bit cold, but but doing well. And Nathan, where are, you, where, where are you at, Nathan? I am in the Nugget Casino in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> I believe you. Alright, is that the one that, no, that's, is that, no, that's in Tahoe, the one that straddles both the Nevada and the California, that it's on, it's on the border? That's yeah, I think it's, border. it's like, freshly, it's like, over. It's in Nevada. Ah. I didn't know you were a gambling man. <laughs> I get to gamble. I'm trying to get get down to the craps table. I'm trying to rush this. Well, let's get into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your paper and kind of give us a little background? Okay. So the idea of the paper, or sort of the problematic, I guess, is that, um, in particularly in the world of soccer, uh, I think it uh, in recent decades has spread to other sports. But it comes from soccer, and it's strongest in soccer. Um, is there's this phenomenon of sort of ultra fandom, which is, I guess, these like support clubs that people form, that fans form, um, that are one becomes a member of, and uh, I think they 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 started as like ticket purchasing schemes, like basically a way to like get season tickets um, and like go out with your your friends, basically. Um, but there's a really, really strong sense of identification with like a particular team, and so they became these sort of like the unofficial cheerleaders of like different teams. Um, and it started in uh, Italy in the 1960s. Uh, was sort of like the first wave of ultras, um, and they've been called ultras since then. Sort of like been their name. Um, and ultras as a group, um, uh, it's a global phenomenon uh, at this point. On you know every, everywhere soccer is played and that there are soccer teams, uh, there's usually an ultra group for the team, um, and it. Uh, I would say most groups are like apolitical or like don't at least explicitly see their fandom as political, um, but uh, the problematic that I set out to kind of explore in the essay was uh, there is uh, a really uh, widespread sort of right-wing orientation to some of the groups. Um, and so, like, 
everyone's heard of soccer hooligans and it's sort of the like ideal of apolitical anarchic violence like basically like a gang like fans get so like into the into their um teams that they you know like they have like fights or whatever um and and hooliganism is sort of this word that has come around to kind of uh it's like a pejorative or derisive word um to like put down like what's perceived as as like sort of unruly or violent fans um but i think the word is interesting and how it operates uh another way which is a sort of implies like a an apolitical um stance uh where like oh they're just hooligans like there's no like political character to like how they're organized or like what they're doing in the streets or at the stadium um so i like that the, i like that there's also this word ultra which is sort of the word they choose um and it kind of implies like like ultra what basically like what are they so extreme about um and i think it's sports first but then that oftentimes is um uh, they're sort of, like I said, like an ultra right right wing um, orientation, um, and there's stuff across the spectrum. But uh, sort of neo fascist or neo Nazi or like skinhead um, ultra groups are uh, much more common, or at least much more visible. And I sort of wanted to explore like why that was the case, whether there is a connection between like the sort of fervor of like the spectacle that is sports, or whether it's the worship of like athletics itself or whether it's just basically that's what happens when you get a bunch of like European dudes together or like if there's something else or some combination. And so that's sort of like what the essay is about is this intersection between fandom um, as like identification with some greater collective thing, uh, sports team or like a nation. Um, and then, you know, sort of fascist nationalism uh, and the sort of racism and patriarchal kind of um, violence that comes from that. Um, so yeah. So so I want to focus on fascism and then see what we can go after that because yeah. is, that is kind of like the the underlying thread of of the essay. But um, can you just for the purpose of of uh, people listening. Can can you kind of just give a a, a brief uh, background into when we because I think the word uh, fascism is is overused, misused, and misunderstood. I think yes. if you want to take a stab at to kind of describing what that looks like, and 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 if and if you dare, can you compare it to to authoritarianism? Is it does fascism always uh, go hand in hand with that, or does authoritarian authoritarianism always include fascism? Yeah, totally. I um, completely agree that. Uh, it's a word that's thrown around a lot. Um, and so I wanted to be careful about that um, because, you know, people calling, like, because uh, ultras are often called fascists uh, or saying, like, oh, they're fascists. Um, I didn't want that to go the way of, like, hooligan become this imprecise sort of pejorative or whatever. I wanted it to be as precise as possible. Um, and so basically um, I follow a few... Um, different historians in my uh, working definition of fascism uh, that I'll get into. Um, but I want to say first that I, when I wanted to talk about fascism, obviously there's fascism as it historically occurred uh, in Italy, Germany, uh, and other places. 
Um, and I wanted to get away from the sort of like idea that fascism is like super particular thing that occurred, you know, between 1924 yeah. and 1945 that, or whatever. There's and more that, to it than goose stepping. Right, exactly. There's more to it than goose stepping, which is, you know, our, as I'll distinguish from authoritarianism in a bit. Um, so I wanted to sort of find a definition of fascism that uh, I think was sort of from the inside, if that makes sense. I want to understand yeah. like the appeal of it, sort mm -hmm. of like the effective energy that would draw people into this like vortex that is like this kind of fervorous um, social mode. Um, and so uh, first thing I want to read is a quote from the historian George Moss. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and he says, fascism is the climax of modern masculinity. And so he's a historian of, of many things. Um, but in this context, he's a historian of masculinity um, and like ideas of manhood uh, and ideals of manhood. And so he has this really interesting book whose title I forgot because um, I'm an amateur uh, that kind of We're deals with, yeah, <laughs> that, uh, that deals with uh, the topic of um, sort of the ideal or what's referred to um, by Mussolini as the new fascist man. And he takes that very literally, you know, there's often this conflation between like uh, mankind or like whatever, like man as like all humans and then man is the gender of man. Uh, and so he kind of says like fascism is like fundamentally a like is oriented towards an idea of like manhood. Um, and uh, you know, many other scholars have noted how uh, one of the like key features of fascism is how it uh, reproduces like the nuclear family, for example, with a sort of patriarchal structure with like the father um, and that in, in many ways, fascism is about sort of like worshiping the father, you know, the, the fatherland, et cetera, the Fuhrer. Um, and so he's kind of tries to dive in and like untangle like what's going on there. Um, and so I think for me, what he means by fascism is the climax of modern masculinity is he has a sort of idea of modern masculinity, um, like that wasn't a flippant usage for him. Um, and so the book sort of details the development of this like masculinity in modernity. Um, and uh, kind of about like the way that uh, sort of as people became integrated into modern institutions such as schools uh, and therefore sports teams, um, the uh, sort of this like a historical strain through like different societies of like what masculinity is started being kind of like regimented a little bit. Um, and the main source of this, <clears throat> of course, is the military. Like the military really is sort of like trying to make like men in a certain image um, to like deploy them. So I guess I'm a little rambling a little bit. Um, but wait, hold on. Before you go, I want to ask you something that I thought this is something that I read in your essay. And I yeah. think you quoted you quoted maybe it's this guy Moss. Um, it, it it the you said that 
the you know with regard to the climax of modern masculinity masculinity as it relates to kind of the, the kind of like an extension or a or a byproduct of the futurist movement in Italy how these the the the, the fascists in a way or, or 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 these people after the futurist movement or during the futurist movement were disciples of the engine which I thought was really interesting yeah um, I mean um, I think. And how sports embodies that 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 kind of like that that force and that has some of those elements, those metaphors of these 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 uh, these these superhumans doing something superhuman that we we can't really collect but connect to, but we can idealize when we see it. Yeah, this is actually the perfect transition because um, what I was trying to build towards was sort of this idea of modern masculinity is like of like men are like hardened, uh, and that means a number of things, uh, and it sort of is disciplined into like the bodies of men and sort of their psyches and like their attitudes, the city of like hardness or toughness. Uh, and so fascism, fascism as the climax of that is sort of like, it's this culmination point where that, um, mode of being is so like revered, um, and like obsessed over that it becomes like the centerpiece of like, uh, political theater and um, sort of like the entire value system that fascism is trying to impose on society. And I think that that relates to people like the futurists, one, because the futurists are super macho <laughs> all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, uh, like you said, they're disciples of the engine. Um, and that relates sort of to like the next like wing of my like uh, thinking of fascism, um, which is about its sort of um, preoccupation with like dynamism or movement or momentum. Um, and so <clears throat> you can sort of see how sort of the new fascist man, which is, um, I should say, uh, this ideal that, that uh, Benito Mussolini had um, to sort of like what he imagined his movement, fasc- his fascist movement to be doing for Italy was sort of bringing it from this like rootless kind of anomic um rudderless like place to this like extremely dynamic forward moment f- forward moving um and like hard tough and virtuous place where by creating this like new subjectivity or this new figure which is the new f- the new fascist man and i i like that term because it sort of in its three words implies all of the different um sub-definitions I'm working with. So, like, there's this idea of, like, newness. Um, and I think, like, the futurists, obviously, uh, their main, I would say, like, jumping-off point is um, to sort of forget uh, forget the past. Like, uh, you know, they're very future-oriented um, and that they were uh, sort of fetishized, like, machines and cars and speed um and like some of the best futurist artwork is sort of like these blurry forms that like aren't really easy you know there's like implying lots of motion so like disciples of the engine they're sort of like these worshipful um like revering this idea of the engine um as it embodies like notions of progress and machinic and like how that's changing like one's relationship to their own body or nature um, and bringing you into the future, sort of like driving you into the future. Um, and then man, obviously, again, this idea of 
masculinity, which I would say is just a totally different historical strain um, from this idea of like technological progress, um, uh, but that intersects with it and interacts with it, and they sort of like um, accelerate each other. Uh, this idea of like men as like hard and um, returning to like this uh, heroic place. Um, I think there's this interesting temporal contradiction there where uh, there's like simultaneously a nostalgia, but like a total rejection of the past. Um, which, and that brings, yeah. Which I thought was one of the, one of the most powerful points in the piece, you know, mm -hmm. this, this, this idea that, 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 that it, it does, that contradiction of, of, of a nostalgia and of a looking forward and these, these symbols, these athletes on the field being, you know, a perfect representation of that idea of the machine and of going forward. But at the same time of embodying those, those old, uh, uh, like you said, uh, wartime camaraderie uh, ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which I want to return to, but uh, if you want to just briefly, just, can you tell me the difference between, uh, can you, can you, can you get in a little bit into authoritarianism and uh, into uh, kind of a, 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 a comparing those two really quickly? Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, so the sort of main core of my idea of fascism um, comes from the historian Roger Griffin. Um, and he has this really clunky term which is palingenetic ultra-nationalism. I like that. Um, yeah. And I liked it too because it really was, uh, so the, what the word means, so ultra-nationalism is pretty obvious. It's just, I don't even know why ultra is in there. It's just nationalism plus some. I guess it fits with ultras. Right. Um, but palingenetic uh, is this idea of like rebirth. And um, so the kind of temporal contradiction that we just talked about, the like simultaneous like backward and forward looking, I think is sort of contained in that idea of rebirth because it's, um, you know, newness. Um, but it's also, again, it's, um, this sort of looking to this romanticized and idealized, um, particularly for Italy, uh, like sort of, um, the like heroes of antiquity, uh, right. of like of right. Rome. Um, and like this greatness of like this former imperial greatness that was the Roman Empire, um, that Italy has like fallen in, into like severe decline from. So renewing that, but not obviously like you know whatever wearing togas and building aqueducts, like literally renewing it, but sort of going into a new place with it or like with this greatness. Like basically, it's the idea of like there's this greatness, um, which is where the ultra national nationalism comes in. This idea of like an intrinsic greatness that is for whatever reason blocked or uh, depleted. And so it's re rebirthing that. Um, and uh, so th I think to me, when I hear the word fascism, especially now after having researched all this, uh, that's much more what I think about is this like uh, almost like discursive or psychological definition um, that doesn't say anything about like what political form it takes. It just is really, it's just, it's basically speaking to the like particular populism of, of fascism. So on the other hand, um, as you said, you know, fascism is not just goose stepping. Uh, the goose stepping kind of comes in, uh, you know, we think of like authoritarianism um, often when we say the word fascist, like when we say like 
cops are fascists, for example. Um, and there's, you know, the idea of like the police state, um, which I think is um, that kind of idea, the like theory of like a total totalitarian state kind of emerged in the late 40s, like after historians were trying to like interpret right. what just right. what just happened in World War Two, but right. also as they were at least in the U.S. Um, and West Western Europe, entering um, the Cold War. And totalitarianism is a re really interesting concept because it binds together, you know, like Soviet communism on the one hand and like the Nazis and the Italian fascists on the other hand into like a single political system, which is like, you know, heavily bureaucratic, usually very militaristic, um, many like regimented things. Like I think we, most people have like a idea of like, what authoritarianism means. And so I really tried to like parse as much as possible fascism from that um, sort of extremely hierarchical uh, authoritarian model. Um, because I think, I think fascism um, as a like political imaginary, as like a populist fantasy um, can easily slide and like historically mostly has slid to an authoritarian regime like again sort of like this worship of the father so like right. well it, it's very hierarchical and whatever um but i think it doesn't have to be uh like a dictatorship um which i think is interesting so you have a lot of contemporary uh fascists who actually claim the term fascism um at least in s some context uh well you have like what's called like national anarchism which is this really absurd thing um whereas this idea of it's like there's no state but it's people organized into these sort of like anarchistic ethnic enclaves um where it's like these little villages of white people who are heavily armed uh you know or whatever and there's like no gay people you know like right. whatever like really fascist and like racist violent uh like ideal society they want but without like a state bureaucracies and like taxes and and whatnot so i think that's but for that to be possible fascism as like a, an effective thing has to be separate from authoritarianism as an organization so yes i think it's important to 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 separate those because then when you get into these into these uh, <clears throat> these words these these titles or these these labels that that kind of bind a bunch of things into one and then you, you can just come, you can, you know, you come up with a, a catch-all word or a catch-all, you know, term like terrorist to kind of, that embodies anything abstract that we're fighting against, you know, so that it's easy to just kind of say, well, you know, um, it's the, you know, you're a fascist or, or it's a totalitarian state, but there, there's differences between totalitarian states and the conditions that lead to it and, 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 yeah. and the, the byproducts of those conditions and what they lead to as far as like a historical narrative and how they affect us here in the West. Um, so I think yeah. it's important to make those distinctions because, um, because then you know, well, because then you get into you get into uh, you get into everybody becomes a fascist, and then you know, Frida's calling me right. fat because I'm telling her to go to bed. <laughs> and, That's so funny. Yeah, no, she should be calling you an authoritarian. Exactly. Um, <laughs> a a uh, motherfucking bastard. Uh, so hold on. So. 
I want to, I want to, I want you to finish that if, if, if there's anything else you want to add to that. But something that I really, really want to talk about is the stadium, the, the Roma stadium, Nathan. Um, is right. there anything else you want to, you want to close with, you know, as far as, as far as what we're, this discussion that we're having now about fascism or are you ready to move on? Cause I really am interested to hear about this. Okay. Um, I wanted to say like two or three more things. Go I'll make them very Go concise. First, I think a good way to understand palingenetic ultranationalism Mm-hmm. is Donald Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again. Right. Because it's sort of like, what does he mean by America, like, again? Like, what was it? It's a very vague. There's no reference contained in the statement. Um, it's just this, like, you know, this idea, this signifier that people can kind of attach to. Right. Uh, obviously. Um, and then and make it great again. Like, both make it great again, so you have to, like, do something to make it so... And uh, to make it happen again, this like renewal or whatever. Um, and secondly, uh, I wanted to read a quote um, that I found uh, from an interview with some ultras uh, uh, that I think sort of speaks to uh, well, it speaks to where that where they are at, uh, or at least these particular this particular group. Well, I'll just read it. Uh, so these guys are from AF Roma, which is one of the two teams in um, in Rome. Um, and this quote came from a piece of writing uh, by this anthropologist uh, named Mark Dial, who did an ethnography of AS Roma ultras. Um, and uh, this guy that became an ultra, or what yeah, he well. Part of like ethnographic work is sort of like participant observation, but he went really hard on the participant side. Like he shaved <laughs> his head, and like, uh, and and then he. Well, we can talk about him maybe in a bit uh, if there's time. But he basically went over as like a I think not really defined person, uh, but really into Nietzsche, and then met all these ultras, and then just became like capital F fascist, um, and writes from that perspective as like simultaneously an academic and a fascist. Uh, and in particular, an academic, like, uh, anthropology, who's, which is usually, like, sort of left-wing. So that's really interesting. But so he was interviewing them and asking them about their this notion of Romanita, which is Romanness. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, make, a, make America great again. Like, what is Romanness? What is America? Like, these vague things that people have very sharp ideas of. Um, so he asked them to explain... Um, what set ultras apart from like non-ultras or like just average soccer fans or whatever. And this uh, man named Fabrizio uh, answered that it was their willingness to fight for Romanita. And he so he said, what do you mean by your willingness to fight? And so he says, quote, we are sons of an ancient worldview. Fighting is a big part of being an ultra because we seek a glory that is not provided by the modern world. Instead, we seek an old glory. Mm-hmm. One one made with virtue, like Nietzsche described, virtue free of priggish morality, a virtue that leads to the strength, the st- that leads to the strength to uh, the strength necessary to do difficult things. End quote. So, a lot I think to unpack there, and we can get into that. Uh, but that's sort of a take on what being an ultra means. So I want to be. I want to yeah. fuck shit up without being held accountable. Yeah. Um, seemingly, yeah, that's, that's basically, although I, I know think, it goes beyond that. I, I hear that all the time. Like, you know, you know, we can't, we can't, well, anyways, I'm not, I'm not going to get No, actually, it. I think that's really apt because I think 
a part of like what makes fascist populism popular is like just as like history moves i won't say progresses but like just as shit changes uh like basically white men in particular white men uh who descended from like like have an imperial legacy like italians or or germans um as they lose privileges or at least feel that they're losing privileges like they it often metastasizes into like these really severe extreme worldviews like manichaean worldviews where it's sort of like the you know whether, whether it's the modern world or it's like liberal capitalism or it's you know uh just the other like whatever uh they're kind of trying to steal from them and so yeah, they want to fuck shit up without being accountable. They want the old glory where, like, men can just, like, uh, you know, as, like, knights or... I don't really know what they're imagining, but, yeah, basically. Well, no, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a world where where we fight wars in the way our grandpappies fought them, you know? Yeah. Um, um, with, with, with less of the scrutiny of, 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 you know, of modern media and the instant, you know, the instant communication that we can have across the globe, whereas, like, if I'm... I'm violating prisoners or I am I'm engaging in human rights abuse or if I am killing whole tribes of people that, you know, people will know very quickly. And so I want to be able to do that without being scrutinized because, God damn it, this is war and this is what happens in war. You know, exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, like this idea of ancientness and ancient worldview. And then I think really key is this the way he phrases it. And this is a translation, obviously, but he says, uh we seek an old glory, one made with virtue, virtue free of priggish morality, uh, a virtue like Nietzsche described. And I think, you know, because Nietzsche has the whole um, master-slave morality or whatever, where, um, well, his notion basically is that there's like, I think, two like main moral formations um, that come from fundamentally different like places in society, like social positions, like, you know, that he calls master and slave. And so the city of like a priggish morality is I think a sort of like priggish, like it's sort of an emasculating term, right? It's like, I don't really know oh, what, yeah. it, what it means exactly, but it, you kind of imagine like a kind of shrimpy person or something right. like really, um, like, yeah, exactly. And so it's sort of like this idea of like morality on the one hand and then virtue on the other, uh, virtue being like basically strength or like hardness to like do difficult things, like do what's necessary which basically like is whatever you desire, I guess. Um, and then like this priggish morality, which is like always objecting to things. And it sort of basically, I think perfectly reproduces Nietzsche's notion of uh, on the one hand, virtue or master morality. And on the other hand, this like priggish slave morality, which is based off of like compassion, turning the other cheek um, and sort of like right. equality. Like basically it's, free of like this notion this like quote-unquote false notion of equality and just admits that like some people are better because they're stronger right is what it, what it's saying right yeah you just you just fucked up my whole paradigm of reality. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i found this quote from mussolini um uh, benito mussolini and he says fascism is a physiological revolution uh which i think is Again, really interesting, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. Um, and what he meant by that was that, like, shaping the body was, like, crucial. Like, if like his notion of revolution was, like, physiological. Like, it was in the body. And so um, between uh, – let me find it. I think between 1922 and 19 
30, 3,280 new sports fields were built in Italy, all over. And I think this is sort of uh, a part of Mussolini's notion of a physiological revolution. Like, he wanted fit citizens and uh, citizens that, like, really valued uh, being fit and athletic and, like, lean. Um, and I think, and this goes really deep um, because, like, obviously, uh, sort of, like, received uh, ideals of, like, what, of, of beauty or, like, athleticism are, like, extremely racialized. So, like, all the sort of ethnic others of Europe, you know, are conceived of as, like, degenerates or contaminations of, like, the pure national body, uh, which must be purified through, like, uh, praxis, basically, through, like, discipline and regimentation. Uh, right. And so this is why he put so much um, resources towards, you know, beyond building um, 3,200 new, uh, mainly soccer fields, he started Syria uh, Syria A. And he subsidized, uh, he subsidized the, uh, the, the spectating of it. Yes, um, I think that was important because he wanted everyone to play, and there's all sorts of clubs you can join as like a, any individual, but he also cultivated very heavily this culture of like uh, spectacle, of like going to the right. game right. and whatever. Which I think, right. you know, I, I couldn't go deep enough, but I think one could probably find that the contemporary, like, uh, culture of going to games, in Italy at least, like, probably comes from that time period. Like, before that, I don't think it was very common to, like, you know, attend a, a game unless it was, like, a really local game. Like, one, he, he established the National League. Two, he subsidized it so that everyone could go to the game or at least listen to it on the radio. Um, so it's, like... Won the World what, Cup. Yeah, um, and then he also made sure that they won the World Cup. He basically bullied uh, FIFA to, like, host it there. Uh, I forget which year, like 1933 maybe. And then um, there's a allegations that he he bribed some referees. Yeah, to, the ref. Yeah. Um, so basically it was really important to him as part of his, like, idea of the physiological revolution to make Italy great through soccer. Um, and not only to make Italy great through soccer, but to make Italians watch um, and feel great through it. Um, and I think that that led directly to ultras. And again, uh, just uh, um, to, to drive this point home or, or to really have it set in and how important, how important sports have been not only for the assimilation of societies, but for also for the enculturation. And I don't think we've discussed this yet here, but, you know, uh, the Brits, wherever they went, they brought soccer uh -huh. with, you know, and uh -huh. you follow the trajectory of, of the British Empire and kind of the different, the different uh, time periods that they, they conquered different parts of the world based on what sports took root, because the, the sports reflected, Whoa. the sports reflected, the sports that they imported or ex exported, I'm sorry, were the sports that, that, that they brought to these places were the sports that were popular with the people that were colonizing these places, you know? So if, right. you, look, if you look at the map of, say, so for example, in Argentina, the people who were working mostly, who were there in Argentina, were factory workers, kind of low to middle class individuals who were working in the factories there. 
And, you know, typically middle class factory workers are the people who played soccer. So therefore, uh-huh. uh, soccer was a sport that was played by the Brits who were colonizing that part of South America. And that's kind of the game that took root. But if you follow that migration to, say, uh, South Africa or other places in Africa or to Australia, then the game there is rugby. You know, so mm. it kind of if if you look at a map of the sports that the Brits, uh, that the British Empire exported throughout the world and cricket in, in Pakistan and in India. Um, and I'm not going to get into the history of that. We'll have a special episode for just specifically for that. But uh, it's very interesting how sport has been at the heart of that kind of that assimilation, the enculturation, the, the, the kind of uh, pacifying, you know, it's a way of keeping workers happy by, you know, subsidizing some of the soccer teams and paying for the sponsorship for the fields. Uh, you know, the factories would say, here you go, here's, here's, here's a few bucks so you can put some grass on or buy some tennis shoes or some boots, as they call them. And then uh-huh. the other thing is Che Guevara was very aware of this. And one of the main things that him and Fidel, uh, Fidel Castro really like talked, like was a big, big, huge part of their, you know, of the revolution was sports. And, right. and sports in Cuba are, 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 well, you know, we don't need to say how important sports are in Cuba, particularly boxing and baseball. I mean, I think it's so ironic that this country that is, is so in, in opposition to American values or to the American system or, or a country that supposedly. is supposedly, supposedly, right. Um, um, is, you know, their, their national pastime is baseball. <laughs> totally. So uh, again, sports always tell the story, whether it's, 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 um, they tell a story, they're telling narrative. They're like architecture. You know, you can, you can, you can prance through a, a place, and kind of look up at the buildings, and you get a sense for what has occurred there, and that's yeah. kind of that's kind of what what occurs with sports. So let's let's talk about uh, talk about the ro- the stadium, right? Speaking of architecture, yeah. Um, okay, so the stadium that we've been uh, mentioning, um, it's uh, Stadio della Roma, mm-hmm. Stadium of Rome, um, and it is currently under construction. Um, and, uh, so I didn't get to this topic in my essay, uh, but basically, um, I think sort to sort of return to this, like, Nietzschean morality briefly, um, at least how, um, this is talked about amongst some scholars I've read and supposedly uh, talked about amongst, uh, you know, like uh, apparently talked about amongst some of the altars themselves, you know, this guy Fabrizio brought up Nietzsche himself, um, Nietzsche. Uh, their understanding is sort of is like they're rejecting one sort of like moral system and pursuing another that they perceive as, as having, you know, died off some point in the past and they're, they're bringing it to the, the modern world. Um, which I think is a general statement that could apply to like fascism as an entire phenomenon, uh, more or less. Uh, and I think, you know, it's like this sort of like this fictive thing that they're convincing themselves of, at least that, at least that they're like achieving this greatness, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I think there's like particular elements that are interesting. Um, and so, uh, Nietzsche famously was like really, uh, uh, 
had a lot of antipathy for this like slave morality as he called it um you know very uh like um aggrandizing name obviously um but i was sort of like like i said based off compassion and like socialism is sort of like a let's say a pure expression of that which is sort of like um you know uh sort of equality by fiat or whatever like you have some sort of bureaucracy that just like defines everyone equally and then it's like this redistributive like economic system um and so that everyone is like provided for and like basically the the end of politics is like economic provision of of like resources or what's needed to basically survive and so um this sort of caricature of like the left um is sort of looked down upon and discussed, I think, uh, by a lot of ultras and a lot of like fascists in general uh, and right-wing people, um, at least insofar as they are like uh, aligning with this like Nietzschean ideology, um, because it's sort of, uh, you know, it's not very glorious. It's like not a very glamorous existence. Like they basically have this idea that like um, uh, social uh, policies like or, like, or I guess it's simultaneously, like I said earlier, it's like people who are sort of imagining that they're losing their privilege. Um, they perceive that, like, where they basically have to give up some of the, like, wealth that they've stolen historically. Um, they perceive it as, like, this enforced, like, fealty to, like, the masses who are sort of, like, this stinking, like, degenerate masses. They have to, like, give up all these things that they've, like, they imagine that they've earned historically. Um, and so in part of that, I think there's been a lot of, uh, tension generated, um, by some changes that have been happening in the world of soccer, uh, and in general, um, and some of those changes, if I can briefly summarize, I guess, are sort of like soccer is more globalized. There's a lot more players from a lot more countries. Um, so like ultras in the sixties, they could always count on when they followed like AS Roma, for example, there was a bunch of like red-blooded Italians playing. But now you have um, yeah, you know, South players, yeah, players from Ghana, Africa. South America. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's actually been a lot of um, the source of a lot of tension um, where, for example, you have instances where the ultra group for a team, um, uh, so a team like uh, Verona, um, the ultras, uh, the Hells Verona, like, uh, I think in the early 90s, there is a, a black player whose who's name I forgot, um, who uh, basically the the fans of the team started shouting racial slurs. Um, he was sort of, I think, unpopular because he was, like, really good. And so a lot of these, like, white supremacist fans were just, like, not into it. They just hated it. So, like, there's this overall, I think, amongst a lot of these right-wing ultras, this, like, impression that, like, there's this enforced globalization where they have to basically, which like, I, I should emphasize, it's within the world of soccer in terms of like more player mobility across like transnational kind of enterprises. Um, but I think really that that's sort of like the the point at which they vent, and really the source of their like deep anxiety and like hatred is um, uh, like migration, um, and so like you know like a lot of Africans. Um, migrating to Italy uh, for work um, or as refugees. Um, there's, I think, amongst, like, uh, I think it just, I think it's, um, 
you know, it's common knowledge that like this is sort of uh, there's like a, a resurgence of the right in Europe uh, and in, in America um, about this like idea of just basically like this like enforced globalization or it's perceived as perceived as this like thing that's forced on them. They have to like now like have there's like more contact with like uh, people of other races and ethnicities. Um, and so I think there's this idea that soccer's changing to be kind of basically more like multicultural. Um, and then on the other hand, it's changing to become more commercial. It's becoming much more a like uh, commercial enterprise. Um, and I think uh, I think this is ab- this is absolutely true that um, it's becoming sort of like liberalized um, in terms of like uh, the player markets, um, like who owns the franchises. Um, so that's where the stadium comes in, I guess, uh, basically is that AS Roma, um, the ultra group, um, is one of the, like, it's, it's like famous for being like really right wing. Um, they have had a long history of like identifying as fascists and, um, sporting like fascist symbols, um, and like getting into fights with the anti-fascists, um, and stuff like that. Um, and again, they have this really strong sense of like Romanist or Romanita. Um, and so you take that fan base and then the team itself doesn't at all resemble what the fans, um, what these like particular people, like what they would want, I guess I should put it. Um, you know, the team is owned, I think by like a Malaysian entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, the franchise has been like, uh, increasingly uh, sort of branded um, and as, as many of the, the major teams have been um, and uh, this, these like, you know, like merchandise has been like, like I think more AS Roma merchandise is sold in Malaysia than in, in Italy, uh, right. which is really interesting. Like, right. like basically it's the, it's become this transnational, um, yeah, they're they're global commercial brands. Enterprise. They're global brands right. that, that have mass appeal, and because they have more mass appeal, a lot of these these um, these these teams that were essentially run like like little gangs is what they were, you know. Right. Yeah. Totally. Little, little like, tiny cartels. These like provincial they, things. They they basically. I mean, they were under they were under the radar because it. You know, because maybe perhaps it was a pedestrian endeavor, and people would go to these games who were, you know, you know, in the '80s or '90s, you, you know, families didn't go to watch soccer games in England because they knew they had to deal with these, you know, with the with the hooligans or with the ultras. And and as the league has gotten mass appeal, as as the Russian dollars, the Russian pounds have come in uh, 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 to to kind of buy up some of those teams that are there, and China has invested heavily in the Premier League. All of a sudden, when I turn on NBC on Saturday morning, instead of having some talk show, I have a, a Premier League game brought to you by Snickers, you know? So therefore, right. you, you have to kind of uh, get rid of, of those, of those uh, symbols and those things that, that smell of or that, 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 that resemble some kind of uh, basically re- rebranding the way the game is perceived. And because of it, bringing in uh, uh, the middle class. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, it's really interesting because the way the ultras were like set up is they had like their own section of the stadium, 
um, where they could fall in Italy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, that's, you know, they could do whatever they wanted. And one thing we haven't even got into, what we think is key with ultras is like, they're all about the pageantry. Like they come out full colors, like pyrotechnics. They have like coordinated, like dance, like not dance, but like coordinated. Yeah. Songs. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Chants. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, like, you know, back, you know, before the 80s, like, the stadiums were smaller, tickets were cheaper, you could drink, you can get rowdy, um, and it was, like, this whole huge event that was, like, the, it was, like, you know, the be-all, end-all of ultras, like, that's why they existed, is to go to these things, and to, like, mm-hmm. it's, like, mass jubilation, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so, obviously, as, as you just mentioned, like, as, as these teams become, like, these major money makers with these brands with their own like kind of corporate strategy of like trying to attract different audiences and to merchandise to different people. Um, and I should also add part of this like, you know, commercialization is, is, uh, well, two things sort of the rise of these like super stadiums that are based that are like malls, like et, et cetera, like, you yeah. know, major yes. commercial spaces and exactly. also like, television like um soccer was sort of reformatted and certain rules were changed were changed in order to accommodate uh the the tempo of television and like commercial breaks and stuff and and this you know this is obviously all like the antithesis of like the the, like the game for for ultras or even for just a lot of like traditional fans um and so there's like this kind of immense sense of loss i think which there's nothing like a huge sense of like a lost glorious past to feed into the the like extreme fascism that is sort of latent or dormant often so i think there's been a resurgence of like uh just more militant ultras uh in terms of just ultras who like um have protests and like um even people on opposing teams coming together to like fight cops or to um um, stand outside of like the offices of like the owners of the team and sort of this like to foment of, insurrection in Tahir Square. Yeah, for for example, um, like the Egyptian ultras um, were instrumental in like gaining Tahir Square, um, getting the space um, for that and like kind of fighting off and um, which that's obviously more complicated. But I think you know um, so, there's so Nathan, I have a yeah. question for you. <clears throat> sure. One of the things that we that we we've been talking about, um, part of our 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 our, um, our continual dialogue here is that um, so we came up with this. We didn't come up with it. We just we just shouted it out at the end of an episode that uh, um, we 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 uh, we named we self named gave us gave ourselves a name of a heritage fan only as an homage to the over. I love I love when words get overused, and I love that the word heritage is overused right now in 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 uh, in, in commercial fashion and in right. uh, in in the artisanal art in the artisanal craft community. But um, uh, so I'm taking that word. I'm co-opting that word because I, I find that for me as the as uh, as a as a, uh, a grandstander mm-hmm. one of the things that I that I uh, look 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 to or lament is the fact that the game as I was accustomed to the game that I grew up watching 
uh, is slowly is slowly going uh, is going away, and the game has now kind of uh, been geared more towards a different kind of fan. And right. um, so, so you know, I I I think I'm not an ultra nationalist, uh, and I think I'm not a fascist yet. I was about uh, to say you're ripe for fascism. This is your attitude. I, I am super ripe for fascism. <laughs> I'm going to try to hold off as long as I possibly can, but I, I uh-huh. am going to say that I am one of those people that romanticizes this old notion, this old idea of hey, the the rampant commercialism, the the TV deals are doing away with this pure activity that I consider to be sacred and needs to be preserved. And um, that's one. The other thing that I, I think we, we really talk about here, and we, we, you know, we talk about devotion to, to the game or to a team, this one, right? And we also talk about like the abstract notion of what does it mean to root for a team if the, the players on your team, you know, it used to be that if you rooted for the New York Giants, the, the baseball team in New York, that played in Harlem. Uh, Willie Mays lived in Harlem, you know, and uh-huh. so did a bunch of the other players. And they'd walk down to the stadium, and and you would, you know, you'd see Willie on the way to the stadium, and you go, "Hey, yo, that's awesome," you know. Um, uh, good luck today. And that, well, that doesn't exist anymore, you know. Um, right. Players are are you know imported from everywhere, but so that's one. So what am what am I rooting for, right? If I if if, if not these guys that are not from san diego well i'm rooting for an institution maybe i may, what i don't i don't know what it is i know that i love my my baseball team i love i love following them that's one the other thing that we talk about is uh in, in episode three we talked about uh wrestling and about working yourself into a shoot mm-hmm. and um which is essentially this is be, this has now become just regular lingo for me I, I use it all the time I use it with with my daughter. Hey, you're working yourself into a shoot right now, um, uh-huh. <laughs> which basically means the way I understand it is, you know, you, you get caught up in the emotion of of spectating so much so that you really start to believe that your spectating is is essential. It's like a fundamental part of life that it, that that exists outside of the arena. You understand uh-huh. what I'm saying? That oh, it's I totally not, understand. That it's not just—it's not just part of the theater of going there and saying, "Well, the performance needs an audience. The audience needs a, perfor- a performer, and therefore there's this relationship where we have a, 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 a codependent relationship to make it. We, we need to make this work together. Otherwise, there's no there's no point for the spectacle, right? And as it yeah. moves to television, as it moves away from 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 a uh, from from the old old timey way, I guess if you want to call it, and um, <laughs> the ancient worldview. Yeah, yeah. Basically, <laughs> as I, uh-huh. as the world becomes less fascist, damn it. Um, <laughs> uh, what? What's your colors? <laughs> My colors are blue and blue. <laughs> um, so so so. Uh, do you see similarities there? Do you see? Oh my. Yeah. Do you see a danger in uh, spectating uh, uh, too hard and working yourself? Do, I mean, do you see? Do you ever see like uh, fans in Pittsburgh becoming ultras, nationalist ultras? Um, not the same way because I think for the same tradition to just emerge would. I mean, I don't know, but I mean, basically, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you recall. Um, 
the uh, Baltimore Uprising, but they went down by um, uh, it was Camden Yards, like the stadium. Yeah, and uh, all these fucking like white bro uh, baseball fans started like you know showering them with like racial slurs and like getting into fights. Like they basically already are, in my opinion. Um, okay, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> some some people can be, um, but I think what you just said, your little uh, spiel, your appeal mm-hmm. to uh, the greatness of the past, is mm-hmm. a perfect, beautiful illustration of sort of the uh, the like fantasy that that the the engine, if you will. Um, the engine for the disciple of the engine. Uh, and so I want to attend to two things, which is um, this, this idea of, was it in this shoot, you said? Work, work yourself into a shoot. Manny, yeah. Manny, I, need you to, I need you to help out here, Manny. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I lo- you explained it absolutely perfectly. Okay, so working yourself into a shoot, I think, like, uh, by way of analogy, like, talking about fascism like it could be even described as just working society into the shoe like the point at which investment into this like spectacular collective experience becomes something beyond just being there it becomes like this it's basically reified as like you know your culture like who you but, are but here but here before we go any, but here's here's this is i think very important to mention because here's yeah. where i think sports can teach us something and that is yeah. if you are well uh, I'm going to use myself. So if you participate in the spectacle, if you spectate the spectacle and you become, you become so involved in it that you do work yourself into a shoot, then you're missing the point about everything else that is around you. And sports is kind of a place to work that out. Now you can obviously take it to an extreme and then work yourself into a shoot and start a revolution or start, you know, start bashing on people. But what I'm saying is that it's it's a it's a perfect forum to work those things out because it you know you have to understand that it is theater that it is just a spectacle. Yeah. Um. I no, I agree. I, I think I think it's ultimately an ambivalent thing. Like for me, um, like I think basically it just shows like the power of of like being you know in a crowd of having like something track like sort of like a narrativized thing like you can track the course of the game and whatnot and like beyond that game like the power of all that um it it just it's so powerful that um it could really like i don't know like san francisco giants fans like burning buses when they win like it's super powerful like in moving people i think that's why it was identified as useful to to shea to mussolini uh, many others, and why it, it leads to, um, like, uh, you know, like the the Arab Spring, um, both in Egypt and Turkey, like ultras taking like the four in the fight, and it leads to ultras and fascists. Um, and I think it's because of this ambivalent, like, way to move people, um, and kind of getting there. And I think you're right. It's like working this these issues out, which is like why I think uh, I was so interested in this phenomenon of ultras um or fascist ultras in particular because it to me like sports is like this this great medium that people come to and invest so much meaning in and like come to identify so deeply with it like it it becomes something else or like almost immediately is something else and by the time you're by the time you're burning buses it's it's moved into something else and yeah it's like straight up insurrectionary yeah 
and it, that that I, I mean that that idea of insurrection or as 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 a vehicle for 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 creating that kind of that that kind of euphoria in people exists in you know in, in many different things and you know we we can obviously have another episode about mob mentality and what leads to that kind of that kind of you know that the, 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 there's this idea that there's this there's this magic number this threshold for what leads people to act in a deviant way and so yeah. for example like for example like you may have I think it's on a scale of like let's say one to a hundred and like for me if I see one let's say there's a mob of people there's a there's a bunch of us hanging out and for me if I see another person like throwing a, a brick through a window that's that's one person is all it takes for me to go fuck it I'm gonna do that too you know uh, but then yeah, for somebody exactly. more on that on that tolerance for that threshold that, that threshold where it's higher it takes you know sixty people before they're like they get overcome with the feeling of like fuck I need to throw a brick like these these like law abiding like like you know straight edge citizens you know regular old people that all of a sudden get you know wrapped up in the euphoria of it and then before you know it you're throwing a brick through the window and yeah totally I think I find that fascinating I think that's outside of sports but it's easy to kind of blame it on sports but I another yeah. thing we talk about on grandstand and I want you to really talk about this I want you to, we can we can come back to those two points I want to, we talk about cathedrals specifically about uh, cathedrals of consumption um, right. and one of those cathedrals of consumption for for grandstand or one of those cathedrals is the stadium the the actual arena so uh, um, if you wanna if you wanna I, I, I wanna kind of like um, move into that so we don't run out of time because I really want to hear this I think we yeah. have a good conversation about this uh, let's talk about the cathedrals of consumption okay I tell you this the stadium um, yeah so again uh, going back to AS Roma and Rome um, I think I've established sort of like where they're at and like again this place they're in uh, and sort of like they're in a changing world and it's really agitating them and that's why so many people um, are being drawn to ultras and also to the the fascist strains of ultras and so in that context uh, the owners of AS Roma and made all sorts of deals with developers and I'm sure this fits into a larger like a, a process of gentrification in Rome um, but uh, a new stadium is being built. You know, that sort of classic uh, right. story of, like, right. urban renewal or whatever, right. uh, which is always, almost always just uh, a huge transfer of wealth to, like, a few developers and, like, right. people or whatever. Right. Uh, so that's happening. And they're building this new, you know, say, cathedral of consumption. Um, and I was trying to find... I read somewhere like, a list of all the, like, amenities it has. I couldn't find it again. But you can imagine, like, it, it, it had, like, sort of hit all the because it, it's basically it's like this state of you know quote-unquote state-of-the-art like sports training complex next to the stadium itself which of course has like mini restaurants and stores um yeah. to uh there's like an entertainment complex next door which is sort of like you know everything's a complex nowadays so just like this thing that has like you know presumably like movie theaters many many stores uh the stadium uh, this huge grand thing that provides you with hundreds of opportunities to lose your money, basically. Um, this big cathedral of consumption that you go to, and it's like this big, like the most intense spectacle, the most intense event possible. Um, and uh, I think what's really key about it is it's kind of on the outskirts of town, like to the point where they're, they're building new infrastructure, new trains <laughs> to even get to it. Mm, um, which is why I think it's a 
Yes. Right. And so it's like anything where the ultras um, in general are like sort of all about this like intense localism. And a lot of them, I think it's become this thing where it's split into all these like uh, binaries uh, between like local and global, uh, between like the authentic and like the old and like the new and like commercial. Um, and what's most interesting to me personally is sort of like how this like reproduces this sort of like old Marxist critique of fascism uh, or like an old Marxist critique of fascism, which is sort of that it's like basically um, at root uh, about alienation under like, you know, like commodity production, but like completely misplaced uh, in a reified idea of like the nation, um, which what that does is contain the like revolutionary energy of the proletariat by identifying them with like the sort of like ruling class as like, we're all the same nation or whatever, right. you know, and you know, that's, right. a, that's a critique, that's a critiquable like uh, a viewpoint, but I think it is like sort of applicable here uh, where there's this idea of there's like a, a latent anti-capitalism to their like antipathy, um, you know, but they don't call it capitalism, you know, they'll, they'll call it like modernity or globalization or commercialism, you know, like they'll get close or whatever, but they'll never quite like, uh, have, it won't be class-based ever. It'll be basically racial um, and nationalistic. And so that manifests in this like sort of this new stadium because there's been um, like protests over it, uh, the ultras, um, a lot of like the kind of old guard ultras just ab like abhor the new stadium. Um, and I think what's interesting to me, like I was kind of just saying is, uh, I think you know, they're correct to abhor the stadium. Like the, the stadium sort of brings together all these, um, kind of economic forces and like, uh, ideologies of consumption that are like totally deplorable. Um, and there is sort of a notion of like, Kind of liberalized capitalism that's you know and globalized as well like sort of these sports teams are basically uh profit driven um they're owned by investors or whatever uh there's nothing you can say about this local and obviously um i differ greatly like and i just like it's just interesting how like this this like alienated sense of like one of the the major institutions in like a lot of these people's lives is like their their fandom, their like their allegiance to this team, which is specifically a local team. Like it's it's place based. It's it's you know it's Roman, um, and that that seemingly in their eyes is just swept out from under them by like you know foreigners and like foreign money that's trying to just like make it cheap. And it's like this idea of like cheapening it, and it's just like this interesting thing where it's like touching on like ideas of like alienation and authenticity um but it's taking it to these other places that i don't i don't know i just that i don't like or agree no, with which um, is, whatever which is but I, it's interesting which is i think the prime well no i'm not going to say that uh i think one of the major reasons that sports have moved to a different model uh because 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 of the globalization, because it's become so expansive uh, and so readily available that 
the allegiances, uh, the new allegiances need to be created, need to be aligned with players, with uh, with statistics, right, yeah. with uh, with a different paradigm that does not include the old model of rooting for a team that is either from your from your city, from your region, from your state, or your nation. You know, I we yeah. I talk about how the as the nation state kind of becomes. Uh, seeds or gives into the corporate state um, you know there, there's a lot of soccer teams that are already perfectly aligned to the corporate model uh, um, and and both both uh, both club teams and both uh, national teams that that have really done well with with promoting their brand in such a way that that as we move away from nationalism move into more of a corporate model uh, we, we will be you know primed for whatever that is that's coming next and also, as as uh, as as we become more more disengaged or more detached from our local environments, in spite of despite the fact that there's uh, you know this 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 localism, this 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 movement to return to 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 the city, there's these or not yeah to the urban core, but also to kind of uh, reinvest in our communities. As much as I want to believe in that, and as much as I I I believe. Uh, 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 the world is is eventually going to resist a corporatism and it'll move to a regionalism. Uh, um, before that happens, I think we will see a tremendous change in the way that sports are spectated. And one of those things is it, it, it as we are, as we <laughs> following this this line of the cult of the individual, mm-hmm. uh, as as social media has has kind of again primed us for the cult of the individual will give rise to the cult of following the player and, or following not only the player but the statistics and where I will become a player in the game because I am you know I I I am I am I am I am now participating because I am now engaged in the re, I'm engaged in a more intimate relationship to what uh, what uh, what the quarterback did this Sunday if he threw 10 touchdowns that means that's 550 bucks for me this week you know what I'm yeah. saying yeah and it, it's it's super interesting. It's like it's totally a disintegration of the previous like forms. Uh, and by way of analogy, like you have like say like a, a corporation headquartered in some country, strongly allied with like the political elites of that country, um, and then sort of in Fordist capitalism, and then moving into like uh, post-Fordist or global globalized capitalism, you have like multinational conglomerations with like many shell companies strewn out like sort of trying to find the optimal place to like run their operations to like kind of keep their supply chain costs low or whatever and it's there's no allegiance to any particular space it's just like this constant mobility and like flexibility whereas you go from like teams uh that are correlated with like a city or a country uh that are the teams play in like games and you watch the game and like what happens in the game matters to like how you think about like the country and the city or whatever. Um, like you're saying, like you have like fantasy sports, uh, you become an individual as, as opposed to like part of a fan base. You track like multiple players that can be distributed across teams. You don't even need to watch any particular game. You just need to like learn particular things that a particular player did in a game. And it's all about the numbers. And it's like an extremely neoliberal model of fandom, uh, where you're basically like this entrepreneur, like you can actually make money off of it. Uh, what you're trying to do is like optimally, 
like align yourself basically with like who's the best overall in the world it's like the right. exact core of like a multinational corporation right um it's very interesting yeah how you doing manny i'm good um in a way you guys kind of already um kind of already well you touched on a lot of um what i've been wondering about but um I think the the point of globalization that's that's an interesting one and 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 I think one that definitely makes soccer unique, um, and it kind of it partly answers this question. Um, I think the increasing commercialism maybe I mean ironically maybe answers this question more than anything. But it's like I've always just been curious about how like I don't know if you guys are aware of like American like conservatives who who've always raised the question about you know what what makes uh like wh- why is it that soccer is soccer fans are so violent like uniquely violent right um which i think it's like it's a pretty simple it's like a misguided it's it's like asking why like why is islam so violent like uh, right yeah <laughs> where where it's um you know I, I i understand the logic like i get how you can it's like yeah well it stems from like the main institution that that bonds the group um but i think i i assume all three of us can agree there's there's a lot more variables involved so so that's that's just what I, i'm curious about like what are those social conditions that like that are set in place that allow for you know the the racism and the patriarchy and and the the violence that that exist in in that exists in any society and in, in in some more in the dominant culture more than others but what allows those expressions of like resentment and and power and violence to 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 manifest in the sporting grandstands um, of only certain cultures, right, and 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 not in in those of many others. Where, I mean, I think you 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 know when you talk about the 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 Italian and the German man, like the, this this sense of losing privilege, um, you know, the same way that the, the white man in America is starting to feel his his power and privilege threatened. But yeah, can we really expect? Which you kind of asked this question earlier, like. Can we really expect to see ultralight groups in the NFL in the right. near, you know, and, and, right. and, 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 but I wonder, no, because, and you know, that's the irony is no, because of commercialism. Maybe that is like the, uh-huh. maybe that is the, perhaps the strongest factor that, that, that hinders and prevents, um, you know, uh, politically incorrect violence, uh, you know, physical symbolic violence, like, um, that's ultimately what, what 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 would never allow it to happen in the NFL. I don't know. I'm just curious curious your your thoughts on that. No, that's Nathan. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the AS Roma Stadium, the Stadio della Roma, uh, um, there is a section for ultras, uh, as is you know traditionally, like, like I said. Um, but it's like the most contrived thing. You know, it's it's like much smaller than like. So again, before there might have been like a, a set out like like measured like section of the stadium for ultras, but like they often you know overfilled that, and I think it was pretty informal. Uh, but this is extremely formal. Like there's an exact number of seats, uh, and I'm certain that they're not going to like oversell the tickets because uh, sort of just like a modern stadium. Um, and like one thing that a lot of the like uh, promotional material for the stadium emphasized was like security, because of course, um, you know, in the age of like whatever the war on terror and, and whatnot like sort of um these I, there's this idea of like spectacular commercial spaces that uh 
are almost like ostentatiously become like bigger and bigger, but then therefore more more and more securitized uh, and militarized um, to sort of protect the the spectacle. Um, so you know that a lot of the stuff that ultras like um, pride themselves in, you know, that can be bringing fireworks into the stadium. They can bring colors uh, and they'll probably be chanting, but they're not going to be like storming the field. Uh, they're definitely not going to be fighting. Um, the drinks are going to be super expensive. Um, they'll probably like, I don't know, like it. And then, you know, then they have to, then they have to like travel like 25 miles to get home. Like it's just going to be, <laughs> it's going to totally transform the experience. Um, you know, to appeal to like, again, like the sort of like petite, uh, petite bourgeoisie, uh, or whatever. Um, and I think, you know, like the NFL, like has kind of always already been that way. Like, um, I don't think there can be an organic like emergence of an ultra culture in American football kind of when stadiums are already, at least at this point, like built that way. And sort of like the architecture itself is oriented towards an extremely passive, um, consumptive like uh, stance, you know, or like uh, phenomenology or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. It's not going to happen here. Um, so there are plenty of fascistic people and plenty of embittered, uh, white men. Um, but clearly they find other ways to, to vent their, uh, resentment. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Manny, Nathan, so, go ahead, man. No, I, I was just going to say, so who's more dangerous, the embittered, white man or the embittered Mexican man who who laments <laughs> who laments the direction that sports are going in <laughs> that was uh, going to be my last stupid. statement but, but, but uh, Nathan do you care to comment before I, I, I yeah 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 no you guys are super harmless yeah <laughs> you just you just made a podcast you're not going out there like buying guns or stockpiling or anything <laughs> I was just thinking that you know I I am I am the I am the most vanilla, most pathetic version of a baseball <laughs> ultra that has ever existed. Because as you're as you're as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, I feel completely disconnected. I mean, luckily the stadium's down the street from me here, but um, still, I, I it's a world apart from my reality because it, it reminds me of Fashion Valley Mall. Um, um, yeah, but, I, yeah. but I, I have to say, uh, with regard to the consumption, uh, I was at Qualcomm a few weeks ago, and I cannot buy a fucking cotton candy with my credit card. I'm still. I'm still kind of uh, bitter about that part, you know what I'm saying? So I understand why the Chargers <laughs> want a new stadium. You couldn't consume enough. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah, exactly. I ran out of modes of consumption. Um, that's one. So that's why they want a new stadium. Um, and then uh, the other thing was that I was thinking about uh, as, as the cathedrals become uh, uh, um, digital in their interaction, meaning – Right. Um, as you walk up to 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 get into the Roma Stadium, you're probably gonna just have to use your you know your digital device to scan it, and then they'll let you in. You know, and it makes me think of of of, of kind of what you know hipsters used to talk about in in the beginning when uh, when when CDs were going the going away. You know, and one of the yeah. things was that um, when you started buying digital music. It was going to be so horrible that you could no longer have that tangible 
piece of of plastic with a little booklet inside right. to kind of yeah. smell and love, you know. And it's the same bullshit I say with regard to the novel and holding a book in my hands, you know. And, and I'm thinking, damn, yeah, yeah. the ticket is is basically going the way of that, you know. <laughs> I can't, I can, uh-huh. only, I don't even have a token of that fucking experience anymore because now it lives in my phone as a picture, you know, and uh, as a screenshot. Yeah. Um, that's one, um, and then the other one is is I am I am I would like to have you again, have you back on our show again to talk specifically about something that I think is is quietly quietly starting to happen or taking taking uh, taking on a, a life, and that is uh, these separatist movements in the world, and how those separatist movements will affect. Uh, spectating with regard to that return to the regionalism that I've been talking about and if they're if the first of all I want to talk about whether those just specifically as it relates to sports um, the the, the one that the one very obvious one is 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 Catalonia with the Barcelona team Um, they already have a team yeah they have they have a global brand if anyone has a shot at separating, I think it's going to be Barcelona, and I would really love to have a conversation about what that looks like as far as the spectacle is concerned. If if you guys have anything else to say, I, I'd say this, is, this has been a good talk. I agree. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on, and uh, and I recommend anyone listening to check out the. Do you want to do you want to plug the the website for the essay? Oh yeah, absolutely. Go for it, Nathan. Yeah, so uh, it was published on uh, through the New Inquiry, which is I think an online sort of uh, kind of political cultural criticism uh, mag, uh, and it was published like in May, and they put out stuff every month. It always is organized by a theme. Really, really good uh, kind of eye-opening reads. Uh, not that mine necessarily was at all, um, but it's yeah, it's good stuff. So we'll make sure we, we, we attach a link to the to the to the episode when it comes out. And yeah, check out well, check out the check out the piece. It's a uh, well it's really good. Oh, no.